Hello and welcome to Inside the Nudge Unit. I'm Toby Park, Head of Energy and Sustainability at the Behavioural Insights team, and this is the second episode of our two-part special on climate change. In the previous episode, we were joined by some of the biggest names in behavioural science, Professors Richard Thaler, Lucia Reich and David Halpern. They gave us a high-level look at the climate challenge through a behavioural lens and discussed how behavioural insights might contribute to some of the sweeping changes we need to see in our lives. But in this episode, we're going to get a little bit more into the weeds. As we transition towards a zero-emission society, some of the biggest implications for us as consumers will be in three aspects of our lives. How do we travel? How do we use energy in the home? And what do we eat? So those will be the topics for today, and we've got an expert on each to guide us. So without further ado, let's introduce our guests. Hello, I'm Theresa Marteau, and I'm Director of the Behaviour and Health Research Unit at the University of Cambridge. Hello, I'm Moira Nicholson, and I'm a behavioural scientist at the um, Cabinet Office Behavioural Science team. Hello, I'm Valentin Quignot, and I'm an analyst at the Centre for Cities. Great. Well, welcome all, and thank you so much for joining us. So I want to jump right in and start with the discussion on transport behaviours. I think it's a topic all of us here have thought about to some extent, and it also covers quite a lot of ground behaviourally. So you know, clearly we've got challenges around accelerating technology adoption, i.e. electric cars, but also around habit change with public transport and active travel. And I think it also provides quite an interesting case study for thinking about both the individual drivers of behaviour, so for example, personal attitudes and physical capabilities, but also the environmental factors that drive behaviour. So you know, be that urban planning, road pricing, infrastructure, and so on. Um, but before we get into those details, I want to first start by outlining our objectives. So, you know, clearly we live in a hugely car-centric society, uh, and the prevailing assumption that I've experienced is that we will continue to do so. So that means the route to net zero would be one of simply electrifying those vehicles on our roads. So my first question really is, is that the right approach? So Valentin, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Is that what good looks like, or should we be thinking you know, much more systemically around the way that we travel or indeed whether we need to travel so much. Yes, you're absolutely right. And that's the dominant sort of narrative. So, you know, what you're saying about behaviour change is hugely relevant now, um, not least because most of the progress we've um, you know, reached so far has been achieved with very little need for public engagement. Thinking here of, you know, the large scale shift away from coal, for instance, and carbon intensive energy sources. But now we know that's not enough. We know that transport is a good example of that. And we know that we need to sort of urgently decarbonize the sector, uh, partly because it contributes the most to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we know that 60% of these transport emissions come from cars. Um, and it's also the sector that has seen very little progress in terms of carbon emissions reduction in the past decades. So, you know, we now see that there's a real impetus and appetite for change in this sector. But the path to get there is still unclear. So, for instance, when you look at the transport decarbonisation plan, which was published a few months ago, you see there's a clear tension between two pathways. So, you know, on the one hand, it says, keep driving, keep flying, keep doing the same things, uh, but we'll do this using cleaner vehicles and cleaner technologies. Um, and so that means rely, relying on technological change. And on the other hand, it says, we cannot reach net zero without shifting away from cars, um, and it sets a clear objective to half journeys in towns and cities, well, to have half of these journeys to be walked or cycled by 2030. Um, and that's quite far from where we are now. So in terms of what's the right approach, we should indeed think of how we move around and how that can change. So 
you know, it's right to set objectives like more active travel and to translate that into policies, whether that's investing in public transport or investing in cycle lanes, for instance. But what's often missing from the debate is, you know, how to make this happen. And that's not just about who will do it or how to finance it or who will pay for it. But it's also about creating the conditions to enable that change. And I think that's where the discussion around land use and urban planning becomes crucial. Partly because the, you know, the underlying truth behind it is that shifting away from cars will not and cannot happen everywhere at the same pace. And some of the work we've been doing at the Centre for Cities looks well, shows that cities and large urban environments have the potential to do so because of the benefits that density brings. And, you know, in, in dense urban environments, journeys are shorter, so they can easily be walked or cycled, and public transport is more of an option because density creates demand to make it more viable. And so that's the reason why carbon footprints per head are much more low in city than, than elsewhere. So, you know, that's not to say that rural areas will have to be left behind in the race to net zero, but it's rather than cities, you know, have a great potential and therefore responsibility to shift away from carbon-intensive transports. And so that has implication in terms of, you know, going back to behaviour change and policy needed for that. That has implications for how we plan cities. We need to stop building, you know, low-dense developments on the outskirts of cities with poor public transport network, for instance, because these lock people and neighbourhoods into car dependency. And if we do this, and it's a big if, you know, then we'll make it easy to leave the car behind. So it's, it's a balance between behaviour change at the individual level and what that means for policy. Great. So you've painted quite a, an ambitious picture there, one that relies much more heavily on uh, a new approach to land use and urban planning and so on. And I think, you know, one one obvious pushback would be, well, we are creatures of habit. You said you said yourself there, there is a degree of lock-in, which I would argue maybe has already happened. Is it feasible? How do we practically begin to think about redesigning our cities in that way? And is there an example of where it's been done well? And assuming that list of examples might be quite small, why is it not being done more? What, what are the blockers, be that in policy or elsewhere? Yeah, well, you know, when you look at places which have successfully eradicated cars or are in the process of doing so, it's important to keep in mind that things haven't always been that way. We often look at Dutch cities, for instance, like Amsterdam, thinking, you know, it's always been like that. But in the 70s, it was very much a car-centric city. So it's easy to think that it's difficult to achieve change, but we have examples to show that it's feasible. Another example that comes to mind is Paris. Um, you know, over the past 18 months, we saw change coming pretty quickly. I think the mayor, you know, installed more than 50 kilometers cycle lanes since the pandemic started. These were initially pop-up lanes and then they were made permanent. So it took pretty bold policy decisions. And the current mayor has, you know, made her battle against cars her battle horse. In the UK, there's there's a few examples, but they're more rare. So, you know, London is a good, is a good example, of course. Uh, we know with the congestion charge, with the ULEs, and now the expansion in a few weeks, we know change is feasible. But going back to the point about land use, London is a great example because it's the only city in the UK where essentially the mayor has powers to integrate transport and planning together within a single planning document, which is the London plan. And so that allows him to coordinate these two policies. So that means building houses near existing public transport network and the other way around. And in other cities, it is more difficult and there are barriers to that. There's much more fragmentation, 
between different levels of government. There's often a lack of powers or resources for public transport, but also for EV charging infrastructure, for instance. And there's a lack of clarity on who needs to do what. And so, you know, we're not very clear yet what the responsibility of local versus national government is. And finally, part of it is also the fact that these are politically difficult decisions um, and, and, and they're not always very popular. So we know, for instance, that some, well, most local authorities at the moment have powers over clean air zones, for instance, but they're not using them partly because they're difficult to implement politically. And that's an issue we need to overcome. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you mentioned there the sort of battle on the car and the proverbial war on motorists is, of course, most politicians' worst nightmare and not something they they want to engage with. But do you think that's what's necessary? Because I I feel like we are pushing uphill a bit here. The car is just so convenient. It's become a very strong default in many people's lives. And I think we often face these sort of first mile problems where, you know, picking up your car key as you leave the house is the easiest thing to do even if 20 minutes later you know you're going to be stuck in some congestion, whereas getting your bike out the shed or walking to the bus stop in the rain and so on is obviously far less appealing. So what's needed there? Do we need to make driving somehow less appealing in order to compete? Yeah, I think so. But I suppose that the key thing to keep in mind is that this should not be seen and perceived as a war against cars and against motorists. And what that means concretely in terms of policies is that we need to enable multimodal transport use. So for instance, park and ride policies uh, or schemes where you know you can allow people to drive up until a certain point of the station and then do the last mile on public transport or um, you know take the bike with them in the train. And all these are solutions which enable people to have a sort of a bit more flexibility in how they move around. Well the reasoning behind this is to acknowledge that not everywhere can change at the same pace and you know we can't have public transport Everywhere, like I said before, density is a key element to that because it, it makes public transport viable because of demand for it. And so we can't expect remote areas to completely eradicate cars. That doesn't make sense. And for some people, it's obviously very difficult to shift away from cars and we need to take that to, into account and ensure the transition is as fair as possible. I suppose, you know, a starting point should be in cities, especially, partly because they are where change can happen the most quickly priority, you know, sort of the first step should be to tackle the 25% of cars uh, journeys which are under one mile at the moment. And, you know, among these, many of them could be easily shifted towards um, cycling or, or walking. People can change. People are ready for change. To bring you in here and get your your view on this and the extent to which it chimes with your take on the literature, because I know you have um, recently undertaken a, a review of behavioural literature on land use transport. So I guess there's a sort of two-part question here. Firstly, going back to my prior point, do you have a view on what the right strategy is here from a behaviour change perspective? You know, is it is the practical approach actually to stick with a car-centric society because that's the easier thing to achieve behaviourally, or, or should we be, be more ambitious there? But then also, I guess, more broadly, what, what's the evidence in terms of what works here? Thanks, Toby. I'd echo much of what Valentin's already said. And I'd think about it in as, as maybe two clusters of interventions. What one's trying to do is to increase the availability 
and affordability of the more sustainable options at the same time as decreasing the availability and attractiveness and affordability of the unsustainable options. So thinking about car journeys, for many uh, individuals and families, it's still cheaper to drive than to use public transport. We still have subsidies on fossil fuels. So we need to look at that. So just uh, coming back to what, what I mean by increasing the availability of uh, the sustainable option here, it is um, about uh, ensuring that we have got safe and attractive cycling and, and walking routes designed around green spaces with good networks for public transport. Although there are many differences between here and Singapore, that's something that they've managed to do very well and are seeing a, a reduction in car use so much so that they're having to think creatively about what to do with all the car parks that are now deserted and using those for smallholders. So, Again, thinking about Paris during the pandemic, we had a lot of discussion about the so-called 15-minute city. So the idea that what people need for work and uh, everyday life is available within 15 minutes of walking or cycling. So at the same time, I wouldn't present this as, as a war on, on motorists to think about how to reduce the attractiveness of using cars. So more car-free zones, uh, limited parking, traffic calming measures and uh, limiting car speeds as well reduces the attractiveness. And I think at the same time, we have to think about the affordability. And so to make public transport using green energy the most affordable way of traveling and, and private transport less affordable. I think we'll probably come on to thinking about a just transition and thinking about groups who would be adversely affected by an increase in the cost of um, private motoring and how to have a just and equitable transition. I think the other point that I would want to make about this is to think about land travel, which is what we're talking about, by shifting, say that the majority of our travelling is through walking, cycling and clean public transport, we also not only are reducing carbon emissions, also has fantastic health co-benefits people talk about. Because in a shocking report published a couple of weeks ago, air pollution is now the greatest threat to health of populations on the planet. I mean, it's it's a horrible competition, but, you know, it's competitive with tobacco. So we know that by reducing air pollution, it's also going to improve the health of populations as well as getting us to, to net zero. We also know that physical activity is incredibly important in reducing the risk of some of the major causes of preventable disease, so type 2 diabetes, many cancers. And we'll come on to talk about diets as well. So I think just to keep in mind that there's a win-win here in terms of improving the planet and also the health of the population. Absolutely. And there's huge public health benefits that, of course, strengthen the policy argument, but also individual health benefits that strengthen the behavioural choice as well. You know, sitting in a car is not as healthy as it feels. Uh, you're usually behind an exhaust pipe of another car and the, the filtration systems in the car are not all that great. So uh, actually getting out and walking and 
and cycling can be uh, self-interested as well as better for society. So, but speaking of public health, of course, you know, one of the bigger impacts that COVID has had on our lives is the way that we travel and, and the need for travel. But it has been a bit of a double-edged sword. Of course, it's it's led to a bit of a spike in interest in cycling, for instance, but also, you know, less travel overall. Uh, but where people are traveling, they've tended to want to stick in their cars, public transport, of course, not feeling safe. So there are still open questions as to how far public transport use is going to bounce back. Is this a, an opportune moment? Is the window for using that disruptive moment still open or is it too late? And if it is still open, how can we use these kind of disruptive moments or other disruptive moments in our lives to encourage people to shift their transport behaviours? One of the ways in which we can take this opportunity is building on some of the changes that we saw in some cities during the pandemic, whereby the amount of space devoted to walking and cycling increased. Um, it was taken from, from cars to actually sustain and embed that, I think would be something that would be very important. In terms of the use of public transport, I'm really uncertain and I don't think we've done a great job in communicating what are the risks of transmission from travelling by train and buses, particularly with um, mitigation measures in place. Um, today, there was a report of an increase, albeit a small number, of accidents on escalators in the London Underground over the last three months. And this uh, arose from a misperception that touching the handrail may actually transmit SARS-CoV-2 increased risk of transmission, uh, resulting in uh, an increased likelihood of accidents, despite the fact that the evidence is pretty good, that that is not a place where transmission occurs. So I think we probably could do better at being able to communicate what the risks are so that people will be more likely to go back to using public transport in a safe way. I think probably a big part of this is that it's not a kind of one-size-fits-all solution. So you know, as Valentin mentioned, some cities will just be better predisposed to being able to walk around them than others just by the way that they've been designed. So the example that you often hear is, you know, the difference between Barcelona and Atlanta. So Barcelona is a city where, you know, very dense, a lot of people living in a small space, roughly the same population spread over a much, much wider geographical area in Atlanta. And of course, you have examples of that in the UK um, too. Now, of course, in a, in a city where it's quite easy to walk around, you know, easy to travel, you know, on foot or to go on bike, Cambridge being a really good example, you might want to, in order to foster the really positive habits people have, have kind of already developed during the pandemic, is to continue to support those people and issue public communications in those areas to walk, to cycle. However, in the areas where there are a lot more what we might call practical barriers in the way of you adopting those behaviours, we might want to take a different approach and tailor the messaging more towards public transport, where, for example, it might be difficult to, say, cycle an hour to work. So I think kind of big thing here is to sort of say that policymakers don't have to sort of message everybody with, you know, get on your bike. It might be about identifying where, what cities, what towns in the UK and around the world do we already have the infrastructure and the urban design that lends itself well to that mode of um, transport and, and issue those messages to those people? And I think that could be potentially a really effective route. I don't know, how could anyone be opposed to trying to fix this? Even if you run an oil company, you and your children and their children 
are gonna have to live on the world. There's no planet B. I do believe that, you know, at the moment we have a good window of opportunity and I think we should act upon it. Partly because, you know, we've all seen, especially during the first lockdown, what it feels to live in a city where we breathe cleaner air and with less noise pollution and pollution full stop. And so I think that's probably was never, first of all, awareness on the issues associated with pollution and traffic, but also engagement and willingness for change. And I think as a local or national policymakers should build on that awareness. I think for me, um, you know, a lot is said of the impacts of COVID and the way it can disrupt habits. I don't have a, a huge amount of faith that habits are just going to sort of magically uh, stick around for the better. What I do have optimism on is is where we can be quick to sort of bake in those changes to the choice environment, in particular to the physical environment. So if we can take the opportunity to maintain those temporary cycle lanes and so on, that could be very helpful. But also where people have been forced to sort of overcome one-off frictions, and now that they're overcome, they may be more likely to maintain the behaviour. So, you know, lots of people perhaps had never used online grocery shopping before, but because they were basically forced to do so, they bothered to set up an account, they'd done it once or twice, gotten over that unfamiliar barrier, now they will continue. Likewise, if you had to fix your bike to use it occasionally, now perhaps you'll continue. Uh, or you've gotten used to using Zoom and, uh, and Hangouts and so on, so now you will continue to do that rather than to travel for business so much. So I just wanted to raise inequalities which have been highlighted in the pandemic, uh, inequalities in experience during the pandemic, as well as inequalities in the health impacts. And thinking about the space where we live, having attractive green space is not equally distributed. So I don't think it's just about local authorities doing more of what they were doing before. I think it is about having uh, to um, to actually create safe, attractive green spaces, particularly in areas of high deprivation, because the more attractive the area is, the more likely people are to walk in it and to feel safe in it and to cycle. So I think that that is one area where I think local authorities could be strongly encouraged um, to make some change. Absolutely. And of course, we know that these green spaces have big physical and mental health benefits as well. So many reasons to do it. Moira, I just want to wrap up this discussion on transport with a, with a question. What are some of the issues that might arise in a world in which far more people are driving electric cars? Obviously, when we look at an electric vehicle, it looks pretty much exactly the same as a petrol or diesel vehicle. But there are some some differences, right? So the big one is refueling. So at the moment, most people are used to, you know, driving to their petrol station, you know, filling up with um, petrol there, makes, takes a couple of minutes and driving off. And, you know, with electric vehicles, the options are a little bit different. So one of them will be to have a charge point in your home. Now, that's actually in some ways more convenient. I mean, no one expects to have a petrol station at their house. But obviously, one of the big aspects of charging at home is that, yes, it might be more convenient because it's right by you, but you might have to plan your journeys a little bit differently because the charging might take a bit longer. So if you're charging slowly on a slow charger, it might take a number of hours and you might need to leave it charging overnight. Another aspect to it is that obviously you don't want to be charging at the same time as everybody else on your street, because that puts a big pressure on the electricity network. And of course, 
unless you're aware of that, unless you're aware of that strain, you, you, you would have no idea and not that's when you might charge. And another element of it is, of course, that when you are charging at, um, say, six o'clock when you get home from work, that's actually the time when mostly we have our uh, most polluting power plants running our electricity because those are the ones that we bring on to meet the big peaks in demand that you get. And that means you'll be charging your, your vehicle with, with something that's more fossil fuel based rather than nice, clean electricity. And the other aspect as well is, of course, that what you ideally want to be doing when you're charging your, your vehicle is if you can, charging it on an off-peak tariff. So that would be having a slightly different electricity tariff to the one you currently have, which charges you one rate throughout the day and one that might give you a lower price when you're charging your vehicle overnight. And so that would mean that you'd want people to be paying a bit more attention to potentially the energy tariff they're on too. I've witnessed the natural world at its most fascinating and vibrant. But I've also witnessed startling changes, changes that are today threatening our very civilizations. It's worth reflecting that our civilizations arose in large part because of the last 12,000 year period of climatic stability known as the Holocene. However, we've taken that stability for granted. It's now apparent that the Holocene has ended and our stable, reliable planet no longer exists. What we do in the next few years will determine the next few thousand years. I think it's a nice segue actually to our second topic of discussion, which is domestic energy use, because I think there again, there are some solutions which at first glance might look wholly technological, uh, but as you look a bit closer, they clearly have behavioural issues attached to them. So, for example, a fairly common narrative might be something like, well, let's just hurry up and invent nuclear fusion, have abundant clean energy, job done. Or if that's a bit too fanciful, you know, more offshore wind and uh, same story. So, Moira, perhaps you can outline why we even need a behavioural approach. So, obviously, you've got all these wind farms, they're generating loads of clean, renewable electricity. In the first quarter of 2021, I think 40% of our electricity was generated with renewables. But that's our electricity. In order for this renewable energy to actually help us reach net zero, we actually have to be using that energy instead of the fossil fuels. And in this country, when it comes to domestic usage, that means mostly gas for our heating, you know, or petrol or diesel for cars. And the only way we're going to actually be using that nice renewable energy is if we're no longer using gas for our heating. But to do that, that would mean householders, who make all the decisions about what heating systems they have, actually being willing to adopt new technologies, like, say, heat pumps, that can run on electricity. And if they don't adopt those things, then that means we're still using fossil fuels for our heating rather than the renewable energy that we're generating. And that isn't any small feat when you consider that roughly 80% of our household heating, 80% of householders have gas central heating. So it's it's quite a big change. But I think one thing that still implies to me is that actually a lot of the big wins in terms of reduced carbon are going to come from a small number of kind of key technology adoption behaviours. So in particular, heat pumps in the UK, for example. Should we even be bothering with some of the small win but high effort behaviour changes that often actually get a bit more attention? Things like encouraging people to turn down their heating by a degree or you know, air drying their laundry instead of using the machine and that sort of thing. Is it, is it worthwhile focusing on those things as well? 
I would say absolutely. So the main reason for that was that getting people to do what you might call the little things like switching to energy saving light bulbs or turning down your heating by a degree is kind of a big prerequisite for then doing those bigger things. And kind of the key reason for that, I would say, is that a big driver of our behavior is our personal identity. You know, do I see myself as a green person or not? Now, the kind of traditional view of how identity is formed is that, you know, I would decide what kind of person I am and then I kind of act accordingly. So let's say I really care about social justice. So I decide I'm going to go work for a homeless charity or I really care about the environment and climate change. So I decide I'm going to be vegetarian or I'm going to pay the extra money to buy an electric car. But there's also a theory, it's called self-perception theory, that actually says that identity can be formed in actually the complete opposite way. So I don't just decide what kind of person I am and then behave in that way, by actually, by making certain decisions, that actually informs how I see myself. So I'll, I'll give an example from my own life, which is that, you know, I've always disliked the taste of meat. Um, I rarely eat it. And, um, you know, when I'm out seeing people for years and years and years, this has been my whole life, um, when people would say, oh, are you going for the vegetarian option? You know, are you vegetarian for animal welfare reasons or for climate change reasons? And at first I'd say, oh, neither. It's because I just don't like the taste of it. And afterwards I thought, actually, I'm really missing a trick here because, you know, I could really make myself out to be a much better person than perhaps I actually am by just saying, you know, yes, it's for climate change reasons. The point here is that, you know, we can actually help people to foster a green identity by asking them to do small things. It's not that we're saying ask people to do the little things because that's all we're going to manage or because that's good enough. But it's by getting people to do the small things, the small achievable things that can help build up people's identity as a green person, the feeling that what they do can actually be achieved. And that's how we lay the groundwork to then getting them to do the things that actually are going to be a little bit more costly and more hassle. I don't disagree with what Maura said at all, but when I look at the challenge before us, I just don't think these small changes from what we've seen, it might shift people's identity, but it's not at the scale that's needed. I don't disagree that we have a big challenge ahead of us. We absolutely do. I suppose what I would say here is that I don't think it's inconsistent. So in other words, I think it's important that we help people to take on behaviors that are manageable at first so that they then have the identity that they would need to then say yes these are these are the things that I'm going to do because this is the kind of person I am and that's obviously the point I made a moment ago but obviously there are lots of other barriers that will get in the way of people doing all those other things that we will obviously need to address and I'd say probably one of the biggest ones is the fact that some of the technologies that we might need people to adopt simply don't exist commercially yet. So, for example, you know, one of the routes to decarbonizing home heating is electricity, but another potential one is hydrogen that's being talked about. But, you know, you can't buy a hydrogen boiler at the moment. And so I guess what I'm saying is that as we're waiting for some of these technologies to develop, we can be fostering this identity so that then when the time comes that these technologies are available, we've laid the right groundwork in place so that they get them. So I do think there's an element of, yes, we need to act now, but there are actually some actions people can't yet take. You were using the example of diet 
And we could go back to land transport. I think there's a very interesting work in psychology, actually going back decades, that tells us that changing our behaviour can change our attitudes as well as our identities. So in one particular study that looked at uh, congestion charging in in four different cities in in different parts of Europe, uh, what they found was that after those policies had been introduced, people's attitudes changed. They became more favourable towards those policies. So that was part of the explanation. But actually another part of the explanation was uh, what some would call a status quo bias. So I think if we waited for interventions to change attitudes and identity in order to change behaviour, we will long be uh, drowned (laughs) or burnt alive. Um, That's not to say it's not part of a mix, but I, I think that when we're talking about the scale of the challenge now, um, some of this will happen, but I don't think that that is where our priority focus should be at the moment. I think one other concern I would have with the self-perception theory and this notion that we can sort of um, foster green identities to therefore drive positive spillovers, in other words, more green behaviours, is that it can happen the other way as well. You know, we get moral licensing effects where actually people do one green thing and they think, okay, that means they don't need to do another sort of ego depletion type effects where we've we've exerted our our good behavior on one thing and we have no energy for the other and so on so it, it is a bit of a risk but certainly you know it's it's a fascinating area i think to, to build into sort of intervention design to think about how you can at least maximize your chances of it leading to a positive spillover so climate change is having unexpected consequences all over the earth what's most shocking to me is that it's even having effects outside the Earth. Climate change also affects objects in space. As the upper atmosphere gets thinner, thanks to climate change, the amount of drag goes down, and that means satellites stay in orbit longer. But I want to focus a bit on some of the other barriers as well. Maury, you alluded there to a few already around the sheer unavailability of some of the technologies we'll be relying on and so on. But what other behavioural barriers are there across this wide range of behaviours we need to encourage, be it big things like heat pump adoption or smaller changes? And how would you start to think about how we might address some of those other barriers? We often say there's sort of three key barriers to behaviour. You know, one of them is to people know and understand what they need to do and why. Are they motivated to do it? You know, do they want to do it? And then, you know, what are the kind of practical barriers that might get in the way that, you know, even if I do know what to do and I really want to do it, that might stop me. Um, So, you know, big one obviously is, uh, you know, do I have the money for it? Um, Is there the infrastructure there for me to, you know, take advantage of cycling and so on? So I'll just sort of come to each of them in turn. So obviously with lots of discussion of what the motivation barriers might be. So we know that, you know, obviously there is sort of an element of hassle costs involved in installing energy efficiency interventions in your home. You know, you're going to get loft insulation, you have to clear out your loft. I know the um, Havel Insights team did some interesting work on that a number of years ago. Also, there's that feeling of, you know, these technologies are really different, they're unusual, people might be kind of risk averse, people may procrastinate about getting it because they feel feel like there's maybe not a, a major urgency to get these things done because climate change effects seem a long way off. You know, it might be your grandchildren or your grandchildren's grandchildren who are affected, although obviously there's a lot of research to show that, that, that the effects actually are happening now and sooner, but people may not know that. But also understanding is, it could also be improved. So for example, 
I'd say at a basic level, there's a real gap potentially in energy literacy. So I'd say a lot of people don't necessarily distinguish between gas and electricity. So they don't necessarily think my heating is gas and my phone charges on electricity. And if people aren't really aware of that, then how would they understand why we might be asking them to upgrade their heating system, but we're not suggesting that they have find a new way of charging their phone? You know, you see at festivals, people charging their phone using their bikes. People might wonder, why, why am I not being asked to do that? Um, so, you know, why would someone kind of go through the any, you know, process of applying for grants or whatever for a new heating system if they don't realise it's their gas boiler that might be phased out, you know, as opposed to the way they charge their phone? I think a lot of people also, they really are motivated to protect the environment, but they don't necessarily know what the best thing to do is. So people might say, well, you know, is it really better to get an electric vehicle if the energy required to make the battery is quite big? Is it better to just keep on using my secondhand petrol car? And this sort of lack of knowledge leads to the procrastination that is a motivation barrier. In other words, if I don't know what the best option is, then I might, you know, delay making a choice. And also there's people who may just simply not have the time to invest in understanding what's going on with climate change. So, you know, practical barriers like, you know, not being able to, as I said, invest time in, in researching it. And, you know, yes, that's always been the case, but particularly now when it comes to having gone through a pandemic and people being worried about things just like, when will I go on holiday? Will I be able to send my children to school for the rest of the year? So I think you asked about solutions, and that's obviously a big important one. Now, people have talked a lot about what the solutions are to the practical barriers. So, you know, can you subsidise technologies when it comes to addressing motivational issues? You know, can you encourage people by telling them what the benefits are? But I mean, I think a big, big thing we need to do is address the lack of potential knowledge and understanding because people don't know what the best actions are to take. And I think the way to do that is through a public engagement campaign that helps to build understanding about what are the best ways of me taking action. And another big part of that is actually, for a start, explaining what is the threat that we're facing, number one. We've talked a lot about that already. Number two, what is the government plan to address that threat? And number three, what are the actions that you can take that fit into that plan? And I think we've already done a lot of one and two. We've, we know what the threat is. We've told people that climate change is real and is happening. Number three, we have told people what things they can do. But I think the thing that's sort of missing is saying what is a way of kind of converting what is a very strong government plan into something that is easy and understandable to digest by the public. So that when, for example, you say to them, do you want to get a heat pump rather than um, have your gas boiler? They know, ah, oh, that's because the government's plan is to electrify heating. But unless you know that, you know, at some point your gas boiler is going to become redundant, why would you take up a grant to do all that work in your home and replace it? So what you're talking about here is some really sort of foundational work. I think we would all probably agree that merely informing the public is not going to get us there on its own, but it, it sounds like you're saying it's absolutely necessary as a sort of first stepping stone. I think in my mind there are parallels here to things like the digital switchover for television 10, 15 years ago, or indeed smart meter rollouts that have happened more recently in many countries, where there would be a lot of effort um, around government communications just to alert the public to this sort of big infrastructure change that is coming. 
Um, and if you think about something like, you know, getting heat pumps in 20 million homes in the UK, we really need something similar so that there's at least a foundational knowledge of awareness of what the plan is, as you say. But then beyond that, of course, we need things that really shift behaviour as well. And you've touched on a number of things there. One thing I don't think you did mention, which is a sort of common go-to and often very effective nudge, is to simply default people into the, the green outcome. So there are some nice studies in Germany and Switzerland that have shown that defaulting people into a green energy tariff tends to work pretty well. The vast majority of people stick with that tariff and indeed report being perfectly happy about it. I think we should um, use green defaults wherever we can. And I think probably the big question that policymakers will then need to grapple with is when can we use them and when might we not be able to? And so as a behavioural scientist, I would kind of say, well, you know, green defaults work really well when the green option is the best option for most people or when you can easily identify any option that will be the best for most people because then you can default them onto it. So, for example, really good example of a policy is, you know, with pensions, it's obviously much better for people to be saving for their retirement than to not be saving for their retirement. So it's very easy for government to say, let's default people, automatically enroll them onto their pension scheme because better to be prepared for your retirement than not. But with some areas in energy, unfortunately, it isn't obvious what option is best. So with heating, you know, the best option will depend on what kind of property you're in. So if you're in a property that has space for an outside heat pump, that might be the best option for you. But if you are, say, in a high rise building flats, it may or may not be the case that a heat pump will work for you. And it might be that you need to be on district heating or maybe at some point down the line, hydrogen. And for those technologies, you can't default people onto one because we don't know what option will be best. So they could work, though, very well when it comes to the design of those systems themselves. So making sure that for all those heating systems, that the thermostats that come with them aren't set to automatically heat everyone's home to 21 degrees Celsius, which is often the default set point in a lot of thermostats, and is set to heat people's homes to a slightly lower temperature so that then we can be saving huge amounts of electricity over the entire population. But obviously that's more of a question for the manufacturers and the private sector in the sense that they'll be involved in developing those technologies. So again, it makes it really important that we you know, engage really strongly with them. So I think that's another thing we have to think about and also charge points. So those can all be defaulted to be smart. So when you buy a charge point, you don't buy a charge point that isn't capable of, for example, allowing you to timetable it to charge your electric vehicle when the wind is blowing or when the sun is shining. So I think we just have to think carefully about where we can and can't use smart defaults, but we should always use them where we can. Yeah, on, on behaviour change, I think there's uh, probably an important point to make, which is that net zero is it's a collective goal, but because the benefits of achieving net zero are sort of widely dispersed across society, then I think there's a risk in relying solely on individual behaviour change and individuals picking the cost of achieving it. Well, that's why I think it's important to have a balance between the role of behaviour change and the role of policy. And so for me, the key thing is largely about incentives. But at the moment, the incentives still point to car usage for transport, for instance. And we know from existing research that travel decisions are mostly driven by convenience and cost, not by environmental concerns. And like we said, in many cases, you know, driving is less expensive than using public transport, and the gap between the two kept growing in the past decade. And when you look at incentives from 
policy, for instance, we see, you know, whether it's the freeze of the fuel duty or the massive road expansion investment, all these examples, you know, go in the wrong directions. And we know, for instance, on road building that adding another lane adds congestion, not reduces it. And, you know, we spoke about domestic heating is the same. The reason why, well, part of the reason why the Green Homes Grant was a bit of a fiasco is partly because the subsidies do not fully cover the cost. And so there was no incentive for homeowners to retrofit their house, for instance. And so we need to think of other ways to bridge the gap. And I think if we do that, then people, there's no reason why people would not be willing to to make the change. Information is really important. But on its own, we know from a huge literature, particularly in trying to shift people's health-related behaviour, as well as looking at trying to shift people's environment-related behaviour, it's pretty ineffective, particularly in environments that are queuing unsustainable, unhealthy behaviour, which is still the current situation. So what we need is people to understand why policies are hopefully going to be implemented that will make available the more sustainable options and also to shift the pricing so that the more sustainable options become the affordable ones. And we have the true cost, whether through carbon pricing or reducing subsidies, so that the unsustainable options are no longer the cheaper ones. I don't have to tell you that the effects of climate change are here and they are real. You can see it everywhere from wildfires and droughts across the West to intense storms in the Gulf to flooding in New York City. In Central Park, 5.2 inches of water fell in just three hours, a one in 500 year rainfall event. They're calling it a once in every 500 year flood here in Philadelphia. And in addition to the flooding, people in Pennsylvania and New Jersey are also cleaning up after tornadoes. So let's continue that thread and talk about food, Teresa, because you've obviously done a huge amount of work in in this space. And again, it's an issue where there are multiple challenges with decarbonizing our food. There are going to be some obvious wins around, for example, massively reducing food waste, which some, some of our recent research shows that, you know, that tends to get a lot of public and political support, although achieving it is not straightforward. But I think actually perhaps the more interesting or the more contentious topic I want to focus on today is around shifting diets. So in the context of decarbonizing our food, that in the main part means reducing our consumption of ruminant products, so beef, lamb, dairy, and so on. So in everything you've done, both on the health side and the sustainability side, how do you think about this challenge? And I kind of want to touch on two things here, both intervention efficacy, i.e. what works, as well as public acceptability. The global food system is the biggest contributor to biodiversity loss and climate change, and second biggest sector for carbon emissions. So changing this is absolutely central to any strategy for uh, reaching net zero. I would say that there are two broad categories, uh, sets of interventions. One set is about changing the physical environment, the availability in particular of plant-based foods, which is what we want to shift people's diets towards, and reducing the availability of, of meat and dairy. And I think coupled with that, a shift in the affordability, so making those foods more affordable and uh, the foods that are responsible for most uh, greenhouse gas emissions are less affordable. So the kinds of interventions, well, 
One that a large study that uh, we conducted in Cambridge, led by Emma Garnett, uh, published a couple of years ago, in which what we did was we doubled the proportion of meals that were served in college canteens, studying, I think, over 90,000 meals. We shifted the proportion that were plant-based from one in four to two in four. So a a very simple intervention. And what we observed when we experimentally manipulated this was that the proportion of students who selected a plant-based meal increased by eight percentage points. So it went from about 19% up to 27%. And That kind of effect size has been found when one shifts the availability of less healthy uh, and more healthy food. So it's a large effect that is well worth implementing. So that's one set of interventions. Uh, There was a recent study published from a group in Oxford that looked at making more prominent meat-based alternatives in supermarkets. So this is a very large study. I think they had over 100 stores that were participating, and they experimented in 20 of those stores and had the others as a comparison group. And what they did was they shifted where the meat-based alternatives were placed. So they put them in the meat aisles and had lots of displays encouraging people to select them. And interestingly, it increased the sales of the meat-based alternatives, but it didn't dent the sales of the meat. So what that highlights, I think, is an important principle which is no one set of interventions is going to do it. And perhaps if that intervention had been coupled with a price-based intervention, so perhaps if the meat were more expensive and the meat-based alternative were cheaper, then that could have resulted in a reduction in the sales of meat and increase the sales of the meat-based alternatives. Because when we come to look at price um, Uh, This is something that Maura mentioned in relation to energy. Um, The price uh, is terribly important when it comes to people selecting things. It isn't always uh, going to be the environment that's number one. And if we look at pricing at the moment, it's incredibly unfair. It was a report published from the UN this week, which looked at subsidies in farming and what they found was almost 90% of $500 billion worth of subsidies in global farming systems were harming health, so on unhealthier foods, and harming the environment. So many of these subsidies are on beef and dairy going to large farmers. So actually, if we shifted the subsidies away from those foods and started to subsidise the more plant-based foods, then we would increase the affordability of the more sustainable foods and reduce the affordability of the ones that we want to shift people away from. So you've covered price there and I suppose the sort of prominence and the prevalence of sustainable options. I think one thing you didn't mention is the sort of perceived taste of people's preferences. And I wonder how important you think that is, because I I believe there is some research that shows that, for example, overt healthy language to describe food or indeed overtly pro-environmental language can tend to put people off. They think it's probably going to taste worse. And of course, our enjoyment is a huge factor in in our food choices. So is there any way we can make sustainable food more appealing, make people not think that it might be in some way lacking because it doesn't contain a lot of meat in it, for example? 
And there have been any number of laboratory experiments that have varied the terms that are used to make them sound more attractive. And I don't know that literature in detail, and I'm sure that that will help. We've seen in the context of healthier foods that very often changing the foods through stealth rather than advertising it can make the foods more appealing. So I think there's work to be done in that space. But going back to the study that I was talking about in the canteens, that actually you can shift the availability. And in that study, we found no difference in the number of people who were using the canteens during the study. So it looks like people can be very sensitive to just changing the food that's available in that space. So maybe it's a bit like the self-perception theory Mora was talking about earlier. Maybe actually our tastes kind of follow after the fact. Um, perhaps we change our consumption through other variables such as availability, price and so on, and then our tastes adapt. Is that what we found with other changes? There's been very little work understanding the mechanisms through which shifting the availability of products, so whether it's healthier or more sustainable products, works my colleague uh, Rachel Petchy has been leading a programme of research on this. And it looks like it's through a number of mechanisms. So one is just purely on average, if you've changed the choice set, you've increased the chances that people might like what you've offered. So if you've increased the proportion of plant-based meals, vegetarian meals, if you've doubled that, then the chances are you've shown somebody something that they like. The other set of uh, mechanisms relates to social norms. So if something is present, people are more likely to think that it's a popular choice and say we're more likely to go with something that we think other people like. So I think there are a variety of mechanisms. It's an underappreciated, powerful intervention. So understanding the mechanisms, I think, is going to be really quite important. Great. So there's clearly lots we can do by changing the physical environment, the food environment. One challenge we sometimes get, though, is that these interventions are, in a sense, behaviours of their own. So you end up with a sort of second-order challenge of how you then encourage retailers, restaurants, and so on to adopt the behaviour of implementing those ideas. So in your mind, what's the sort of policy response or the higher-level intervention that's necessary to incentivize that? I think it's a real challenge, but I think that we've underused public sector for being able to make these changes. Because I think that if we made these changes in the public sector, at least people would then have some idea of what sustainable food looks like. To give one example, in Scotland, in Scottish NHS, they introduced a regulation in 2015, this is in the context of healthier food, such that food that was sold or available in NHS spaces in Scotland, at least 50% of the food had to be not high in fat, sugar and salt, and the same for uh, 70% of the drinks that they sold. So that was sort of one example of using the public sector. An example closer to home for me is the uh, University of Cambridge in 2016 introduced a sustainable food policy and it reduced carbon emissions significantly across the university estate. This is for food. So they removed all ruminant meat from their menus, and they did this by stealth, and nobody noticed or complained. They lowered food waste, and uh, they also eliminated uh, unsustainably harvest fish. So it can be done. 
So I think that starting in the public sector is where I would go. And I think probably from what we've seen from voluntary deals for trying to improve the healthiness of food in the private sector, I think that we would need to move towards regulating in order to shift the proportion of food. So not eliminating choice entirely, but shifting over towards a significant amount of food that is being sold, being that which is sustainable. And I think the public sector in the UK spends about 3.3 billion per year on food procurement. So clearly there is quite some leverage there to start with that across hospitals, prisons, schools, etc. I also wonder about the buying standards. I don't know why we do need to buy ruminant meat out of the public purse. Why don't we just stop doing that? Why don't we just take a leaf out of the University of Cambridge's book that was five years ago that they did that and um, the university is still going strong. And I know that uh, many other institutions have, have done this, not just in the UK. So I think that there's a real opportunity for the public sector to just model what could be done elsewhere. You clearly haven't keeled over yet from lack of protein, so maybe that's one of the uh, the edgier policy recommendations. All of this is going to take work, attention and energy, and I know that's not easy. The problem with climate change is that it's always felt so abstract, impersonal and far off into the future. And the usual symbols that we use don't, don't do much to fix or help that. It's either a graph that's difficult to understand or a sad polar bear on a small piece of ice. And it's hard to get emotionally fired up over that. I, I don't even know that bear. But maybe at the other end of the spectrum, something that's generally much more low-hanging fruit from a policy perspective is merely informing consumers so they can make more informed decisions themselves. In other words, labelling of various sorts and designs. And we sort of touched on this a little bit already, but what does the evidence broadly show in the food space on the efficacy or not of food labelling? So thinking about the health space, so front of pack labelling and labelling on shelves and labelling on menus, uh, we're talking about relatively small effects uh, compared to the example that I gave of shifting the availability of uh, more plant-based foods. We're talking about relatively small effects, but where effects seem to be seen, they are perhaps greater in terms of indirect effects. So certainly in terms of calorie labelling, one of the effects that's been seen is that it's shifted retailers towards providing foods that fit a healthier category. And that may be something that would happen if we had uh, environmental labelling. So some of the evidence is suggesting that it, it can make a difference. So I think a point that I was making earlier about thinking about placement of meat replacement products alongside meat, labelling is going to be one of a number of interventions. And we need to implement all of these together, coming back to the nature of the challenge. So I think good labelling, ensuring that those are the products which are not only sustainable, but are more affordable than the unsustainable and present in greater proportions. This is a a distinction that's really important, I think. At BIT, we're often the first to warn clients and policymakers that information alone is quite a weak driver of behaviour change. And yet we're also strong proponents of the idea of deshrouding markets, in other words, providing better information to consumers, not because we expect it to lead to significant widespread behaviour change directly, 
but actually because even if only a very small minority of consumers switch their behavior in response to that information, that can create a new sort of competitive edge within the market that forces other players, i.e. retailers, producers, and so on, to start upping their game so as not to lose that small market share. That's right. And we need to be clear this uh, information covers many categories. So we're talking about information about a particular product or activity. There's also information that about the effectiveness of a government policy. And coming back to thinking about how can we increase the palatability, if you like, of these interventions for people We've been looking at that, and as has been mentioned earlier, one of the important things is that any transition to low-carbon travel, energy, or food needs to be fair. And it's recognised that there are some groups for whom the burden is going to fall on them more heavily. So any intervention needs to be introduced as part of a package that's going to protect the poorest households And there are a number of ways in which that can be done through reimbursement and various financial schemes. So I think fairness is incredibly important. But the other factor coming back to information is information about the effectiveness of an intervention at achieving a valued goal, which here is reducing carbon emissions for net zero, either providing that evidence for effectiveness or asserting it increases the acceptability of the policies. And we conducted a a systematic review where we looked at 36 different experiments across a range of policy areas of which the environment was one. And what we found is that on average, you can increase the acceptability of a policy by about four percentage points by informing people that it is effective. An important Corollary is if you provide people with information about the ineffectiveness of a policy, it reduces acceptability by a similar amount. So it's very important that people are given information about the effectiveness of any policy that's being introduced. So policies need to be perceived as fair and they need to be fair as well and people need to be informed that they are effective. And then the third thing which we've touched on is Provided those criteria are met, the introduction of a policy does, where it's been studied, shift the acceptability. So we saw that with the ban on smoking in public places. After that was introduced, it became more acceptable. We've mentioned the plastic bag tax, the pricing, that has increased acceptability of that and other policies. Um, And similarly with uh, congestion pricing. So I think that there's a lesson there for policymakers to be a little braver in terms of implementing some of these policies with those caveats that I've outlined. Quite agree. So there's a good little triptych there. Make sure policies are fair, communicate their effectiveness, and have a bit of faith that public opinion tends to shift to the positive after they've actually felt the benefits of a policy. I think the key thing with with, um, hydrogen, as probably with any technology that's sort of new to people, even heat pumps, is that when people haven't ever tried something or used it before, they might feel particularly hesitant about it. So what you found, you know, with electric vehicles, for example, I think this is where we can really learn a lesson from electric vehicles, where we have kind of, in a sense, progressed quite quickly with electric vehicles. Heating is sort of more of a next phase of of decarbonisation. 
is that people who have actually tried and driven an electric vehicle will then say, oh, I would never go and use anything else. I don't know why I was so worried about it. And once people have kind of tried a technology, they actually feel much, much happier about it. And particularly, that's why you see people with electric vehicles having bought one because some of their friends have. So I think one of the things I think that we really need to do when it comes to, say, hydrogen, is actually get people familiar with the idea of having a hydrogen boiler in their home. I actually noticed this morning that my old team at Ofgem had been recently to visit one of the first demonstrator projects of a hydrogen kitted out home where all the appliances in that home are run on hydrogen. And that's exactly what you need to be able to do. You need to be able to have policymakers, the public seeing homes that are already running on these systems and that they're not peculiar or weird. They do exactly what your current home does. And I think that's something that we really need to see more of. Another lesson that we can learn from electric vehicles, of course, is that one of the slight downsides of trying to make these technologies work exactly like our existing ones is that then you don't know they're there and that that's what they are. And, you know, in other words, they're not labelled as the low carbon technologies and then therefore people don't realise how popular they are. And obviously social norms is a big driver of behaviour. And one thing that we can learn from electric vehicles is that actually one of the policies that's recently come in is that now, you know, all electric vehicles have a little green sign on the number plate so that you can identify that as an electric vehicle. And then, you know, oh, look, lots of people have electric vehicles. That's something that maybe I would get too. So I think, yes, we need to show people that this is a technology that is used, you know, through demonstrated projects. And then we have to hopefully also identify that these are low carbon technologies so that people can see that other people are getting them. Yeah, I think there's a whole range of sort of innovative and fun uh, intervention ideas that are based on that idea of normalising, de-weirding these new technologies. I'm thinking things like, you know, should we be having show homes among early adopters of heat pumps so the neighbours can come and look at them? Should we be promoting electric vehicle adoption among hire cars and Ubers so that people get a ride in one and think, oh, this is fun? Should we be encouraging plumbers and boiler engineers to to be early adopters and so on so that they communicate that? It seems to be really important that we understand the way that certain early adopters within society can actually spread that influence in the most effective and rapid way. I think I would um, emphasise the role of information. And I think on these issues and on taking the public with us, it's key to bring clarity on what the objective is. I'm thinking, for instance, the diesel versus petrol car versus EV kind of choice decade ago now, maybe a bit more, we told people that diesel cars were good because they're good for carbon emissions, but then we now know they're also bad for air pollution. And I think it can be sometimes a bit difficult to try and understand, okay, but so what's the best option and is it really good? And are we going to find something about about EVs in, in 10 years' time? And I think it's important now to try and be as clear as possible on you know what the benefits are, what the risks are, and then leave people make their decision based on that. Clearly, we've covered a huge amount of ground here. Um, We focused on some big things and some small things, but I think we've really still barely scratched the surface relative to the scale of the challenge ahead of us. What one nugget of advice or wisdom would you wish to impress upon the leaders and the thinkers attending COP? I think we've sort of reached a turning point. Um, You know, I think public awareness on the importance of net zero um, and the emergency of the climate crisis, um, you know, have never been that high. Um, And I think that's a huge opportunity for local and national policymakers to, to build on that awareness and to deliver now. So I think now is not the time to set targets. Now is the time to put in place the measures that are necessary to, to meet them. I think given the seriousness of the crisis, it would be a mistake to be naively optimistic. But I think there is room for positivity um, and optimism. 
But I suppose we need to see more commitment from the public sector and the private sector altogether. And we need to see this as an investment, not a cost. And so a key thing to keep in mind is that there are plenty of people out there, whether they're individuals, businesses, who are willing to nurture their behaviours, but they'll need more resources, more information, more support on how to do that. And a lesson we've learned, I think, from the pandemic is that you know, when there's a situation we consider to be a crisis, then we as a society and government as well were willing to invest billions of, of pounds to, to address that. And I think now it's time to treat this climate crisis the same way. I guess going back to one of the points that was made earlier about, you know, information on its own isn't enough. And I absolutely agree. But we must make sure that that doesn't get interpreted as There's no point in giving people any information or explaining anything to the public because that's just not the case. Like, absolutely, we can default people onto green technologies where there is the obvious default option that's best for everyone. And where that's the case, we don't need to necessarily go into all the details of explaining why and so on. However, for technologies where we do need people to understand so they can make informed choices, say like over their heating or how they charge their electric vehicle, whether that's at a public charge point or whether they install something at home, whether they use something residential, we will need people to kind of understand a lot more than they do now about their energy. So we need to explain what is the threat. We've done that very well. We need to then say to people, what is the government plan to counter that threat? And we we have actually some really good lessons from the pandemic as to how we can do that. So the roadmap for how we exited lockdown was a really good example, I think, of government being very clear and upfront about, look, these are the stages that we're going to follow to safely exit uh, lockdown. And these are the things that you'll be able to do as a result of these new changes. And I think we can really draw on that and use that to create a similar sort of plan and a public communication of a government plan to reach net zero and in a way that is simple just like the the roadmap was so that then people can make plans just like people made plans about their wedding so they said oh well I'm not going to be able to have as many people at my wedding if I run it in May as if I run it in July so some people had a smaller wedding in May and other people chose to delay their weddings till July Similarly, with heating, what you want is a situation where people can go, okay, what is the plan and the timeline for decarbonizing heating so that I can decide "Hmm, when my boiler breaks down, will I replace it with another gas one or will I actually go and look at some low carbon options? And it's only if that plan is laid out as clearly as it has been, I would say, when it comes to the, the roadmap, that people will be able to make those right choices. No one wants to be in that situation where they turn around and go, gosh, if only you told me two months ago and I wouldn't have bought this new gas boiler. So I think it's really, really important that we, that we really engage with the public on the plan and lay it out clearly and simply. With a huge thanks to our three guests, I'm going to close off by answering my own question. What would I say to the climate leaders descending on Glasgow? Well, we've heard a lot about following the science during the COVID pandemic. And whilst the world hasn't always lived up to that mantra, it has revealed a certain trust in scientific evidence to show us the way. So I would say follow the science. Follow the science showing that behaviour change is necessary. The International Energy Agency and the Climate Change Committee in the UK both highlight that around 60% of future emissions reductions depend on some degree of human behaviour, be that technology adoption for things like electric cars and heat pumps, or reduced demand for ruminant meat, car travel and so on. 
but also follow the science and what works. We've only scratched the surface today, but there is no shortage of evidence of effective interventions to support and encourage greener choices. And follow the science, which also shows that there is public appetite for this. Our own research, and that of many others, shows that public concern is at a sustained high, and most people genuinely want to live more sustainable lifestyles. We're just often a bit confused about what we should do, what the right actions are, and so on, and they're just not easy enough yet. And finally, don't be so scared of behaviour change. It's not all about finger-wagging, admonishing, imposition on our freedoms. The 30-year journey to net zero does not have to feel like an extension of COVID with governments clamping down on our daily lives. Actually, the science shows it's often far more subtle than this. Less about imploring people to act differently, though a little bit of that might be helpful, but actually much more about building a world in which the green behaviours are just easier, more available, more normal, more affordable, more appealing. That means investing in infrastructure, leading by example through government procurement, regulating markets in smarter ways, incentivizing businesses so that the choices consumers face are green by default. If we can do that, behavior will largely follow without feeling like a hassle or a personal sacrifice.